Tazi 1100. Okay, just to give you some perspective there. There were more than we ever thought possible. Um, anyway, I can't think what I was going to say. Um, so we'll let you guys get going. I'm not going to go yet, but just a few like background things. Um, if you hear us say ODM, that was like we went and served through Open Door Ministries. And so when we refer to ODM, we refer to like the main building that they're out of. And then when we say the family room, that is like in ODM, but that's where the homeless can go and hang out for the day, get a meal, freshen up in the bathroom. They're just not allowed to sleep there. So that's what we mean if we say any of those things. Well, my name's Nathan. Um, Excuse me. Um, Before I share one thing that I really enjoyed this week, um, I have a funny story. So Sunday night when we got, um, we sailed into Westside Church outside the city. And um, we went to ODM. And we went to the worship service, and uh, it was really impactful. You could feel the Holy Spirit in that very room as soon as, like, I stepped foot in it. Um, And afterwards, there was a person that got baptized. And after that, we went down to the basement um, to eat supper. And there was this super old lady. um, She was Mexican. And she sat across from me about two seats to my left. And she was talking to me. And... um, she was wondering where we were from, what my name was and all that. And she was like, so how old are you? You look like you're 20 years old. And I got that a lot this week. That was older than 16. And I was like, no, I'm only 16. And she was super nice and funny. And she's like, well, by golly, you're so handsome. <laughs> and um, that's what I noticed a lot this week with the homeless people is that they do have a good sense of humor. Um, but for this week... One thing that I really did enjoy was um, going to Mount Evans on Tuesday. That was really neat to see. And then also on Wednesday, <clears throat> Wednesday when we went to Garden. <clears throat> no, I'm good. Um, when we went to Garden of the Gods, um, that was really cool too. But also, um, before we went to Garden of the Gods on Wednesday, we got to minister to the homeless. And I thought that was really cool because... Um, we did see a lot of homeless people, and it was just neat seeing um, all their stories and how they ended up on the streets. And yeah. My name's Jacob. Um, the most impactful moment for me was we went on a prayer walk on Tuesday, and there was this guy named Julian, and um, he didn't speak English, and it was me, Jan, Chris, Paige, and Jordan, and we prayed for him. And he had pain from his knee all the way down to Obama's foot uh, from alcoholism. And we prayed for him twice, right? Twice, two times. And um, after the second time, most of his pain was all gone. And he could walk again. So that was pretty cool. Okay. Um... I think the part that impacted me the most was praying for everybody, hearing their stories. Um, But after we would pray for a lot of people, people would look at us and say, can I pray for you? And that was just really emotional for me because these people had nothing, absolutely nothing, And they were so grateful for us to be there and give them a bag with toothpaste and toothbrush in it. People were just walking over them. They weren't walking around them. They would step over them like they were just a piece of dirt. And it just bothers me because we are all an image of God. And we need to show compassion to these people. And we need to love them because... They're not all on drugs. A short story I can say is I talked to a guy named Stephen. Him and his wife both had full-time jobs. Neither one included insurance. They had a house, 
a vehicle. Life was good for them. His wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had to quit working. So he was trying to uh, support them, make a truck payment, a car payment. He finally quit making the truck payment so she could have treatments. He lost the truck, quit making house payment because he was trying to keep his wife alive. She died. He lost his house. He was on the street. He was somebody just like us. This can happen within 24 hours. We need to show compassion to these people. We need to help them. They're people just like you and I. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to follow that up. Uh, (laughs) uh, My favorite part from the trip was the first night we were there, uh, we met one of the pastors there, and his name was Matthew, and he was just an amazing man. He'd been through a lot. He was a former drug addict, homeless, but he found that, and he started living through the Lord, and he was so positive, and he had so much faith, and I just loved him. He was awesome. He, we also bonded over sports because he was a huge sports fan, and I just thought he was awesome. You want me to take it? Okay. Um, I guess I'll start off uh, saying that I really think that I grew, like my compassion for the homeless really grew this past week. and The past couple of years that we've been doing this even, I've definitely noticed like my heart really just breaks for them to see all the people just walking past them like Jan said like they just go on and they don't even notice they're there it's crazy to think about um and then also what really opened my eyes even is just the beauty that God created the mountains it's just so beautiful you just see God's creation and you just know how real it is and how beautiful it is and that he created it it's just amazing So I have a couple different, like, favorite parts from the week. Um, So on Sunday, we went to church at ODM, and that everyone who went, you got to have a free meal afterwards if you attended the service, which is a really cool way to kind of show people the Lord's love. And during service, um, like some of the others said, the Holy Spirit was just, like, there from the moment we walked in. Um, The praise was crazy good, and... uh, I just thought it was really cool. They they tithed, and, you know, people would just be digging in whatever change they had in their pocket, and they would just give maybe a couple pennies if that's all that they had, but they would give it, and they would be faithful with it, which I thought was really cool. Um, and then when we went to the park across from the Capitol building, we met this guy named CJ and Lee, and they were all in, like, a group. And um, they were all just super sweet and super nice. And CJ, he talked about all these things that he could have done, how he could have made all these careers and, like, helped himself, you know, make some money. But he was like, I don't want to do that. Like, I just want to make people happy. And so he gave us all. He gave me, Jacob, you got one, right? And then Jan. We all got these, like, trees of life is what he called them. So he would just rip brown paper bags, sandwich bags, and he would rip them up and he would make them into these cute little trees. I didn't bring mine because I want to preserve it, but uh, Jacob and Jan gave theirs away to, I don't remember who, but they gave theirs away because they felt called to give them away. Um, So I thought that was really cool how he just, he was like, I could sell these. I could make a billion of these and sell them and I could get myself off the streets, but that kind of defeats the purpose of like making someone happy because they have to pay for it. It's just like a gift. So I thought that that was cool. And, uh, My other favorite part of the trip was when we had finished our devos at the church at Westside, and then we all wanted to sing, so we FaceTimed Laura, and she got on her piano like, no questions asked, and we all were singing Shekinah Glory over FaceTime with Laura leading it, so I thought that was really cool, and uh, I think we all just grew. Um, For me, I think the trip was more about getting really close with the group, Um, that's where it impacted me more, and so I feel like these are really some of my best friends now. Got me crying now. <laughs> um, 
I would have to say, as a nurse, I, the, the one thing that stood out to me um, is the injuries that the people on the streets have. Um, and it's mostly because every single day they have to fight for their lives. They're out there, especially if you're a single person, like alone. Um, you know, if you have any possessions whatsoever, you have to protect them. And if you can't protect them, I mean, you're, they're going to try to beat you up to get what you have. So the amount of people that we saw that had injuries to their face, especially, um, most everybody did. Um, the, the homeless people that are there at the, near the Capitol building, comparing it to last year and the homeless um, tent cities that they have, because they have actually a ban um, in place right now that where they cannot have that type of areas where they can, you know, pop a tent up and everything. So um, anyway, uh, the crowd there, to me, was much, much different than what we saw in New Orleans. It was a much rougher crowd. Um, they openly are using drugs. You know, marijuana is legal there. Um, but, you know, we saw people, I'm pretty sure it was probably crack. They had a rock of something. They were, like, trying to chop it up, and they had a pipe. They were getting ready to smoke when we were walking up to them. But one um, man in particular that stands out to me, we were getting ready to be done, um, and there was kind of a group. I, we tried, our groups tried to steer away from large groups of people. Um, you kind of approached people that were, you know, one or two, maybe three people, um, just because usually they were pretty loud, and there was fights that go on all the time. I mean, you see fights. I mean, we even went to the Dollar Tree to buy toothbrushes and stuff, and there was an argument that broke out with, I think it was a homeless man and another lady, and she said that he was... He was standing too close to her, and it was offensive to her. So she was making her presence known and saying, you know, get back from me, you know, because, you know, they don't take showers every day, so the smell is not the best. Um, anyway, but when we were leaving, getting ready to go gather everybody together, um, there was a man that was um, laying just on his back, but he had a backpack on, so he was laying on top of his backpack. And his face was bloody. And I just felt called to, like, just walk up to him, and um, we were giving him a bag, and he kind of woke up a little bit. And uh, I sat, or I squatted down, and I was talking to him for a little bit. Um, but he seemed very shocked and surprised that I would take my time to to talk to them. And a lot of them feel that way because, like they said, they literally, people just walk over them. And um, who are we? You know, who, who are we? Um, you know, we have to, like, ask ourselves that. I see the young people that we take, and they're learning lessons by all this. Um, they're learning that, you know, they're putting faces, they're putting stories with the people that are just laying on the streets. And, yes, they could have been just like you or me, you know, whenever it was before life happened to them. So um, we just need to not make them invisible. You know, we have to, you know, it's overwhelming to go and see so many of them, and you think, oh, yeah, we're giving them a meal, we're giving them a toothbrush. But what are we really doing for them? We prayed for them. I think that was probably the most that we could do. And they were all appreciative. And like Jan said, you know, they, they would ask, well, can I pray for you now? So, anyway. I was told to stand up. <laughs> all right. So uh, this is our third year doing this, and I think this is our smallest group, which you would think it'd be otherwise going up, but it didn't. There was some people that I missed, specifically, I'd say Mitchell and Andrew, I wish they were here, but they didn't. But I think the group that we had was about perfect. I think we can all agree, because there was no distractions, nothing, no issues between anybody. So I think that was good. 
And then another story that I have while we were there, there was a guy named Frank. We were going around on some scavenger hunt through the um, church that they wanted us to do a scavenger hunt and, like, get us to talk to people. And so there was this lady walking past us, and Darren had said something and said, hey, how how's your day going? And she was like, oh, not very good. And so Darren decided to pray for her. We all prayed for her. And Frank, who's the mailman, jumped out of his little, I don't know, car or whatever, the mail mail truck, and was like, are y'all, y'all giving out free prayers? And so he came over and um, told us a story about how his daughter um, was with his mom and his uh, her boyfriend or husband or whatever, and he suspected that she was getting molested by him, molested by him because she had bruises on her wrists and whatnot, and that wasn't him, and so he didn't know what it was from, but that was his guess. And so we decided to pray for him and hope that he got through his situation all right. But I just thought that was cool how he jumped out of his little mail truck and wanted to be prayed for. So, Yeah, Frank was awesome. Um, Is this still on? Nope. All right. We'll go to this one then. Um, one of the things I want to show you is, uh, and we've been in other cities where people would try to sell these little newspapers. Uh, this one's called The Voice, and this is this co- is covered in several cities, but it's also personalized a little bit for Denver. And they sell these for $2, and they make $1.50 per, per copy. And so in here, you'll have all kind of uh, poems and stories and articles that homeless people have written. And it's in order to express themselves and the frustrations they go through. But it's really a good read, and it supports them. Uh, so if you're ever in a city and somebody tries to sell you something like this, um, it's only $2. And if you want, I'll reimburse you. <laughs> but anyway, it's a, it's a really neat article. And the guy who was running the newspaper was a homeless man, Brian. Um, had no teeth, smiled, laughed all the time, loved to laugh at himself. Um, but he was hilarious, and he's come a very long way, so he was cool. But we, we did get to pray for a lot of homeless people. We got to know them personally this year, more than, than in the past. Uh, our group, I, we never were told, no, don't pray for us. We were never told, no, we don't want to talk to you. Um, they took our gifts. They took the, I, I was amazed. It's 96 degrees. They wanted the scarf. They wanted the little hats that made out of yarn that our ladies made. Uh, they wanted anything we would give them. And then they immediately hid it because they knew they could get beat up over it. But they wanted it. Uh, but they were just so amazing people. But one thing nobody mentioned is what was our theme this week? Yep. Rocky Mountain High on Jesus. And, and that was our theme. And every night, God gave me, gave me a series of devotions based on mountains. And so we talked about various Jesus, Elijah, Moses, and their encounters with God and, and how Jesus would pray over the city of Jerusalem from the mountain. And, 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 and anyway, so we talked a lot about mountains and mountain experiences, which is where you get your strength from God and where you go to be alone with him and, and you get your marching orders from him. And then we ended it last night talking about Deuteronomy 1, which was what, not last night. It was last night, wasn't it? Oh, the night before. I'm getting, they all bleed together. But on Friday night, we, uh, the message was, uh, it was time to get off the mountain. And so the, the context of it was, we've been together for four years now, and now it's time to disperse. It's time for us all to get off the mountain. Because God never intended us to stay on the mountain forever to stay in his protection, to stay where he is, to stay where we're familiar, where we're comfortable. It was time for all of us to get off the mountain. And and, and there's hesitancy in that because we're afraid. We talked about the different things that that go through our heads when we think about getting off the mountain, the fear, what's going to happen, where am I going to go, where's God going to provide, what's he going to do, um, I don't know what to expect. And, and, and then it was also anger, I'm not ready to get off the mountain, I like it here, I want to stay here. And, and so we talked about all those different nuances, and, and so i just been reflecting all week on the fact that we've had a good run. It's been a good time. But... What God's called us to is to disciple 
the students and to turn them into disciple makers. And so I told him, I said, we've been showing you how to do ministry. We've been showing you how to pray for people and, and, and praying for God to put a, a passion inside of you for other people. And we've been putting it on display. And now it's time for you guys to start praying and to start visiting and start doing mission work on your own or leading groups and, and making disciples in your own right and teach them how to do the stuff that you know how to do now. And... Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm encouraged. I think these guys are going to be awesome. I think they're going to be bold. I think they're going to, to be led by God and that they're going to be attached to him. And it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be fruitful. And so we, we get back and, and all of a sudden I have a depression because it's, it's an end, but yet it's also a beginning. And so for everybody, I think the message is, is apropos. It's time to get off the mountain. It's time to, to quit huddling around in God's presence, and it's time to go do ministry now and to do it in such a way that it makes the devil tremble. Um, but God's been good to us, and God's shown us a lot, and he's taught us a lot, and none of it's going to be wasted. So we're going to say a quick prayer. And then I'm going to jump up here and I'm going to do some scriptures for you. And we're going to do a quick little message, okay? We'll call this a, a homily in the Catholic spirit, <laughs> which will be 8 to 10 minutes. That's what that means. All right, so let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of getting to go into the world and to, to do ministry and to see the world, to see how you're moving in other communities and other churches and other people's lives. We thank you for the church family that has supported this over the last three years who have given us their prayers, their letters of encouragement, their, their gifts, um, their finances, all helping it to make this possible, Lord. We will never be able to repay it, and we'll never be able to adequately say thank you, but we do appreciate it. Lord, don't let any of this be wasted. Let all of us learn from this, and let us all be bold as we go into the world to make a difference. This is why Jesus lives inside of us, so that we'll have the power and the words and the strength and the initiative Lord, please, this world is hurting. They are hurting so bad, and they're, they're longing for someone to love them. And you have sent us in your name to meet that request. Let us not hinder anymore. Let us not dilly-dally. But let us go in, with passion and make a difference. In Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, so thank you guys. There's obviously, there's obviously a lot more stories we could tell you, a lot more things we could share with you, and you'll be getting them in the weeks to come, I'm sure, uh, especially if you just ask. You'll get all the information you could ever want. Kids, you're dismissed for Children's Church. Go forth. Have fun. Learn something good. Our scripture reading is in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. Remember, this is a five-week series that we're doing, and that's why I didn't want to skip today. I want to highlight just a portion of this. We're talking about the cycle of sin and the games that people play in, regardless, in regards to that sinfulness and, and the worldliness of this crazy life that we live. And so we're going to look at a couple, we, uh, a couple verses in particular. Now, remember, last, last time we were together, we talked about pacification, which is peace, and the game that we play in regards to peace. And today we're going to be talking about prostitution. Not that kind, Lisa, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, we're going to be talking about prostitution today. And in regards to the game of idolatry, the game we play with idolatry. And so in, Je in Judges chapter 2, we're going to look at verse, uh, verses 11 through 13. At, during the time of peace, and, and the peace is what led into this time of sinfulness, it says this, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him. 
and they served Baal and the Ashtoreths. So we're going to break this down a little bit, as much as I can. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is the church. The church did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Notice, it didn't say they did what was evil in the eyes of one another. This was in the eyes of God, in his judgment, in his perspective. What the people did was evil to him. It was downright evil. That comes from a Hebrew word, hara, which means sadness, wretchedness, or evil. And, and what it means to us is this, is that God was, that our activity, that the church's activity, that the Israelites' activity, and we're all part of this, our activity grieved God so deeply that it created a sadness in him. It's kind of like a parent who grieves when their kids don't call them on Mother's Day. Or, or when you don't come home for the holidays. Or when your mama calls and you screen the call and you're not going to answer the phone. And then you don't call her back for several weeks. God was grieved. He was, it was sadness. It was wretchedness. It was evil. But it provoked him to a negative response. It's because of his intense love for us that he grieved when he was rejected. He loved so much. Now, here's the thing. Personally, I don't know if it's possible. I, I would say that it's not possible for God to get depression because he's so wholly perfect. But he can get a little irritated. It's, it's a, a holy, righteous indignation, but he can get irritated. What is it really, knowing his holiness, his, his love, his perfection, what would it take to possibly provoke him to, to grieving and sadness? Well, it's exactly what happened here in this passage. The people that he chose, the people that he put his name on, the people that he put his love into rejected him. Now, it, it wasn't, he wasn't angry because they rejected him because he doesn't need us. He wants us. If he needed us, then in any time we say something derogatory to him, he's going to be like, oh, they did it again. Why are they so mean to me? God doesn't act that way. He doesn't need us. So we can't put sadness on him by mistreating him. We can't do that. But what really bothers him is when he knows our future and he knows what waits for us around the corner and he knows that we are defiantly rejecting him and pulling away from him to go around that corner anyway, not knowing what's there, even though he does. And so God is sitting on his throne thinking, don't go that direction. It will not end up well for you. Don't go that direction. And we're like, nobody's telling me what to do. I'm going that direction. And then we get ourselves into this huge mess, and God hates that. He hates because he knows what's coming and we defiantly and stupidly do whatever we want anyway. He knows his adversary, the devil, is creeping around like a roaring lion ready to devour his people. That's in 1 Peter. He knows that about his adversary. The devil hates his children. And when we go out in isolation and do stupid things, he knows we're going to get devoured. And it angers him. Because we won't listen to him. We won't trust him. We won't let his love prevail in us. Because we insist on doing everything our own way. That bothers God. So Hara, the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They rejected the God who loved them. To go after a God who hates them. Yeah, that would make me angry too. And, and there's a, a series of little verbs used here. And, and in the Hebrew, I'm going to tell you what, what the word is and, and how we're supposed to understand it. In, in Hebrew, it says, Wei ya azbu, which means that the people forsook the Lord, they left the Lord, they abandoned the Lord. Okay? So that is Wei ya azbu. 
The next little phrase is Y Le Ku, which says they went together, they departed together, they walked away with another. So in order to abandon God or in the process of abandoning God, forsaking God, they went and aligned themselves with another God and they walked with him instead. Now you can see how, why God is getting so angry with this. I am the God of love. I will protect you. I will bless you. I will make your lives forever blessed. But you want to go this direction and you want to end up in the hands of my enemy. Not real bright. The third one is why yes taha wu, which means they bowed down, they bowed themselves, they worshiped, and they gave homage to another God. Now, there's a lot of implications to this. The biggest one is this. The Bible makes it very clear that in this universe, there is one God, and it's him. He's the one who created all the heavens, the stars, the moon, everything. He created everything. He created every one of your lives. He put his breath into you. He is the only God. He's in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three persons dwell together. They're the same essence, but a little bit distinct. He is the only God. When you read through 1 Corinthians and you read about food that was sacrificed to idols and how the religious people were eating that food sacrificed to idols, Paul makes it very clear. Now, we all know that those idols are nothing because they're man-made. They're not literal. They're not, they don't exist. The only reason they exist is because we've created it and we've made it. We've put that into existence in our own lives. Those gods are irrelevant. They're non-existent, but we give them credence by calling them by name, by worshiping them, by giving them our hearts and our devotion. We make them into gods. God is not threatened by any of it because he knows this is all worthless. Those gods don't exist. But what does exist is his adversary, the devil, who masquerades in the form of these various gods. Drawing the attention and the worship and the praise of, of God's children to himself. We stupidly don't know. We think we're worshiping uh, Athena or Apollo. But no, we're ultimately worshiping the devil. There's only two options, God the Father or the devil. And, and so those are our options. And so these other gods, they just distract us. They just confuse us. Which again is what the devil does. So all of this process of, of abandoning God and walking with the devil right under God's nose is what irritates him so badly. The entire process. We would say, well, God, why didn't you do anything about it? Why are you just stand there and don't do anything? And God says, because I love you. And that sounds kind of strange. But because he loves us, he gives us permission to choose for ourselves where we're going to put our allegiance and our devotion. If you want to worship another God, even though that God doesn't really exist, that's up to you. Because he loves you so much, he's like, then go. I'm not going to make you stay with me. Like I've said many times before, because I love Paige, I'd let her talk to other people. Yeah. And if she wants to talk to other guys for whatever reason, I let her do that because otherwise I'm not displaying love to her. If I'm controlling her conversations and her friendships, then that's not love. That's control. I also give her permission to get the keys to the car, whichever car she wants, and she can drive it wherever she wants. She can go wherever she wants. She can spend whatever money she wants. Most of it's hers anyway. Isn't that nice of me? <laughs> but that's why she knows that I love her. Because 1 Corinthians 13 says, if you love, you also trust. Love does that. Love gives you options. It doesn't control you. It just offers itself in perfection. All of this under God's nose. He lets you worship those other gods because of his love for you. But he also knows that you're wasting your time. And that you're setting yourself up for a whole bunch of trouble. And that's why he grieves. And that's why he's so sad. And that's why he sees it as evil. 
Now, here's a passage that you really need to become familiar with. It's in Deuteronomy 7. In Deuteronomy 7, it says this. God's instructions to Moses and to Joshua, to all of the people of Israel, when they go into the promised land to, uh, to inherit the land that he promised them. He says to them, you must go into that land and destroy the enemy totally. Whoever lives in that land, destroy them completely and totally. Get them out of the land. Make no treaties with them and show them no mercy. Do not, this is important, do not intermarry with them. Don't go and and marry. Just don't do it. It's okay for a Baptist to marry Catholic or a Methodist to marry Presbyterian. That's not what I'm talking about. He's talking about Christians marrying a non-Christian. Don't do it. You're asking yourself for trouble. Don't go and, and, and marry a Muslim. Muslims don't marry Jews. Jews don't marry Hindus. You know, just don't mix with that stuff. You marry those who are equally yoked with you. And you have a similarity and a common bond. Do not intermarry with them. He says this, do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? You ask. Because they will take your sons away from you. They will take your sons away from following God. And they will cause your sons and daughters to serve other gods. So don't let them intermarry. That's why Samson got into so much trouble and his mom and dad were so distraught with him because he picked a Philistine woman that he liked and he says, Mom, get her for me. I want to marry her. And they're like, you're nuts. We're never going to grant that. But in parentheses in that passage, I believe in 1 Samuel, it says they did not know that God had a plan for his life. Interesting. But do not intermarry because they will pull your sons and daughters away from God and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So to all of the kids, most of you are here, when you um, hear from your parents, we don't approve of this person. Understand how significant this is in the scriptures. If you start dating a non-Christian girl, or a non-Christian boy, and you fall in love with them, guarantee you will, you will distance yourself from God. That is why we throw our fits and we put our feet down and saying, no, I am not going to condone you marrying someone who doesn't believe in the Lord, who is not committed to Jesus Christ, and who is not growing in, in their faith. You can do whatever you want because we love you, and we're not going to control you. But this would anger us because we know what kind of trouble you're going to get yourself into if you marry this type of person. And what's really sad, if I were to take an inventory, how many people in this sanctuary did marry the wrong person anyway? And we're sitting here in guilt and shame because, you know what, I made a mistake. My first mother-in-law, she said this, because uh, I asked, I said, why did you marry a non-Christian man? And she says, back in the 50s when I got married, it wasn't that big a deal. It wasn't that big a deal. Can you believe that? And the reason it wasn't a big deal is because he was a nice man. He was a hard worker. He had some good characteristics. But he was a non-believer. And after she married him, it caused problems in her marriage up until the day she died. Crazy. But we do that stuff because we don't know the scriptures. And because we don't agree with them. We'll say, you know what? That's, that was 4,000 years ago. I'm going to do whatever I want. And then understand that God says, and they did evil in his eyes. It's crazy the things we do, but this is the game we play with God. I'm smarter than him. I'm wiser than him. I know what I'm doing. It's going to be okay. And we sit there and shake our heads. Fine, go for it. Good luck with that. It says that they provoked him. They provoked God. This comes from two Hebrew words. Why yak isu, which says they provoked 
easy translation. But it also says whether it was intentional or not. You can either provoke God intentionally, trying to make him mad, or you can just do it by negligence. Either way, it's the same Hebrew word. The second Hebrew word is har, which says to become hot, to become kindled, or was wroth. They provoked God to anger. Our behavior oftentimes provokes God to anger. Not that he's angry at us, not that he's angry in general or disappointed or sad, but he's just angry because he knows that you're falling into the devil's trap, and he hates that. He hates it because he knows the devil for who he is and what he is. He knows that he doesn't care about you. He's going to destroy you. He knows that. But we foolishly trust him anyway. You know, it's like the story I've told before of the, of the little boy who was getting ready to go up the mountain, and there was a rattlesnake on the ground, and the rattlesnake spoke to him and said, Little boy, would you do me a favor? Would you please take me to the top of the mountain? And the boy says, No, you're a rattlesnake. You'll bite me and kill me. Rattlesnake says, No, I promise I won't do it. I really need to get up there for my family. I need to get back to the top of the mountain. Would you please take me? And after many minutes of begging, the boy says, All right, but you better not bite me. And the snake says, I promise. So the boy takes the snake to the top of the mountain. And as soon as he sets the snake down, the snake bites him on the hand. And the boy says, why did you do that? And the snake says, I'm a rattlesnake. That's what I do. But yet, how many times do we pick up the rattlesnake thinking it's not going to bite me? It bit everybody else, but I'm smarter than they are. I'm so much smarter. It's not going to bite me, right? I got gloves on. And then he bites you on the leg. You know, it's just crazy. It says in verse 17, now this is where this all comes together, and I'm going to get through this quickly. It says in verse 17, they would not listen to their judges. Because remember, after God sold them into slavery, into bondage to the enemy, the enemy oppressed them for many years. And then he would raise up a judge to deliver them. This is the process we'll get into over the next few weeks. But in verse 17, it says, but they still would not listen to their judges. They didn't learn anything. They still don't listen to their leaders. But instead, they prostituted themselves to other gods and they worshiped them. So that word prostituted is used. And this is very interesting. In Webster's Dictionary, and I'll tell you a commentary on this in a minute. In Webster's Dictionary, to prostitute means this. The act or practice of engaging in intimate relations for money or any other item of worth or value. I had to tweak that a little bit to to make sense. There was one version of the dictionary, I'll tell you this. Their definition of prostitution, it's physical intimacy, but only if one or both of the parties are married. So in other words, it's not prostitution as long as neither party is married. That's the stupidest thing in the world, but that's the direction the world is going. We're justifying our sinful behaviors more and more and more and more, and we're going to keep tweaking the definition so that it matches our agenda. But prostitution, by this one dictionary, I'm not even going to mention it, says it's only if you're married. Isn't that crazy? Now, Webster's Dictionary also took another word, very similar, and took it a little bit further, and this is what the definition of debasement is. To debase means to lower in status, to esteem, quality, or character, or to reduce the intrinsic value of something, or to reduce the exchanged value. So let me just say this. The Hebrew word is zana, which means to play the harlot. Remember, the games people play, to play the harlot is what it's talking about. So what verse 17 is, how it's twisting this passage that we just talked about in, you know, in the previous verses is that in God's eyes, we are prostituting ourselves to other gods. Now, I'm not a, a real big scholar, but I'm just trying to make sense of some things. When I think of prostitution, I think of a person that sells themselves or makes an exchange for something of, of, of some value to them. Usually it's money, right? I'm going to sell myself to you. I'm going to do things for you for money. 
But if you look at debasement, basically what you're doing is I'm agreeing to lower my self-esteem, lower my value, lower my quality, lower my character in order to achieve something I want, money. All right? So I look at prostitution like that. So when I see this word in Judges in the Hebrew, I'm like, is that what we're doing with other gods? Do we go into the world and worship these other gods and do we debase ourselves for money? No, it's not that. I don't think it's that. But I think it is very important to recognize the debasement element. When we reject God to follow other gods that are non-existent, we are lowering our character, lowering our value, lowering our self-esteem, lowering our quality for the sake of another God. That angers him because if we stay with him, we'll have nothing but the cattle on a thousand hills, years and years of blessing and good health and, and, and maturation and blessing with family. There's only good from God. But to reject and abandon that, to go after another God of any sort, means that we're debasing ourselves and we're devaluing ourselves. But here's the thing. We're not necessarily prostituting ourselves to other gods because we're smarter than that. But yet we fail to recognize the devil's smarter than us. He knows those gods don't exist either. And so when we say, I don't believe in Apollo, I don't believe in Thor, he's like, good for you, you're so smart. And you see what he did? He just promoted you to your own idol by making you think that you're smarter than everybody else. He's playing with you. He's messing with you. And he's completely pulled the wool over your eyes because you don't, you're, you're permanently involved, maybe not permanently, but you're definitely involved in idolatry and you don't even know it. Because if you look at the definition of idolatry, an idol is anything that you place value on higher than God. Anything that is more important to you than God is an idol. And you're worshiping these, you're prostituting yourself to those idols. You're debasing yourself to those things. So what are those idols? Whatever you put higher on the pedestal than God. Now this is where it gets real tricky. Your spouse could be an idol. If you believe that your spouse is more important to you than your very own God, that's a problem. Put your spouse on a pedestal and God will get angry. And the problem is, is a lot of time when we create idols, in order for God to get our attention, he has to take that idol out of our lives. Did you ever think that maybe God would take your spouse away from you in whatever means necessary just so he could get his attention to show you he still loves you? Why wouldn't he do that? The Bible's filled with stories of that. Or here's another one might be a little bit closer to home. If you put more value on your children than you do on God, you're involved in idol worship. I've heard many times people tell me stories, oh, I don't tithe, I give my money to my children because that's where, you know, that's where the need is. Okay, well, that's idolatry. For one thing, it's not your money, it's God's money. You're to be a steward of it, not a possessor of it. I've heard people say, well, I can't come to church because I babysit my kids on Sunday morning. Idolatry. I, I can't uh, go to church on Sunday mornings because of kids' sports games. The kids idol worship the, the sport, but we idol worship the kids. And so, well, the kids are playing soccer at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, then I have to be there for them because I'm their grandparent, I'm their parent, I have to be there to watch them. Idol worship is pre prevalent in this community, in this world. It's prevalent, and we keep worshiping the idols time after time, item after item, all the time. None of us are exempt from this. We all do it. And as a result, we are debasing ourselves. We're decreasing our value because our value only comes from God. This, I know this is hard stuff, but it's stuff that we have to be privy to stuff that we have to wake up to i don't want god to to look at me and say you know what i know you love me but boy i wish i could i wish you loved me as much as this or that i wish you loved me as much as those vikings 
I wish you loved me as much as those cardinals or, or your car or your boat or your golf clubs or your swimming pool or your vacations or your bank account. On and on and on. We're all guilty. Every single one of us are guilty. So don't think I'm looking down my nose at anybody else. We're all guilty. We all do it. We're all idol worshipers. The problem is we don't necessarily know what God thinks about that. We don't want to know. But it says this, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We could change that real quickly and we could say this, the Christians did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We provoked him to anger. And as a result, as it says in 17, or in verse 16, he gave us to the hands of our raiders. In verse 14, in his anger to Israel, the Lord handed us over to the raiders who plundered them. He sold us to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. So my only point is this. The frustration and the agony and the misery that we're going through in this life could be because of our own doing. And in actuality, it's probably because of our own doing. God wants to bless you. He wants to love you. He wants to nurture you. He wants to guide you. He wants to to remove the obstacles from your path. He wants to be your God. That's all he wants. And it's all because he loves you. And he waits for us to respond. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will continue to convict us of all sin. Not so that we'll be in misery and not that we'll feel bad about ourselves or be ashamed. Because, Lord, if we don't have this understanding of our brokenness will never turn to you for healing i pray lord that you'll convict all of us so that you will drive us to a place of confession and repentance because that's when grace comes and we know that you're a god of grace and god of love and you want to replenish us you want to reestablish that relationship with us and lord before that can happen we have to know that there are idols in our lives and we lay them at your feet and pray that you'll destroy them if you have to or take them away from us but lord please Come back to us and have fellowship with us. We're sorry for what we've done. We're sorry for turning our backs on you and abandoning you. Lord Jesus, please have mercy on us. Please return to us. We can't get by without you. Please hear our prayers, Lord. May they be genuine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.